You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 31. We are grown-ups. Welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Mort Hawkinson. I'm Bland Torkington. I'm Flip Skippington. All right, so we've put all that Halloween stuff behind us, and it's back to business as usual. And boy howdy, boy howdy, do we have some business for you. We're back to formula this episode with a piece, a song, and a story. And yes, yes, I know you want to listen to it, but here's the thing. Podcast Law says I have to tell you some things at the beginning of the show. So, here they are. Do you want to support the show? Do you? Of course you do. Here's what you can do. Tell 37 people about the show. Have, like, a Denver Orbit party or something, and then ambush everyone at the party by making them listen to this show. It'll seem weird and cult-like, and you might lose some friends, but we might gain a listener. And in the end, isn't that what matters? Yes. Also, and I know every single podcast on the face of the planet asks this of you, oh hapless listener, but you can rate and review the show on whatever podcast app you use, or even on Facebook. And if you all did it, well then we wouldn't have to ask now, would we? And finally, do you have an art thing you're making? Uh, An art thing that might sound good in someone else's ears? Is this a weird way to ask this? Yes, it is, but... Anyway, if you're making something that you think is neat and you want others to hear this neat thing, let me, us, there's no us, it's just me, let me know. The best way to do this is through the internet's electronic mail service at denverorbit at gmail.com. So let's push this rickety cart down the road, shall we? As mentioned, we've got a thing, a song, and a thing. The first thing is a piece radio producer Ray Solomon and I made over the summer for a thing called the 24-Hour Radio Race. What's the 24-Hour Radio Race? I'm glad you asked. It's an event put on by KCRW's Independent Producers Project. They give you a theme in the morning and you have 24 hours to make a four-minute piece of radio around that theme. The theme this year was The New Normal and we finished our piece around four in the morning. We didn't win, but it was a pretty great experience nonetheless. Now, for the purposes of this show, I've actually given it a little more length and put some things back in that were left on the cutting room floor. And so here it is. This is called Heidi and Pearl and Heidi. Pearl, you gonna sing? Ready? Here we go. My friend Heidi is a stay-at-home mom. Pearl is her daughter. She's four years old. So I've been taking care of Pearl seven days a week since January. I'm now a caretaker, and that's pretty much it. I wake up really early, I'm a morning person. I've always loved coffee, but now I really love coffee. Pearl brings more joy into my life than I can imagine, but um, the first couple of years of her life, I went above and beyond to nurture her and get her into all the early intervention therapies and 
um, her nutrition and what happened after about two years of doing that for her is that I got really, really depressed. Nurturing Pearl is complicated. Heidi got her first inkling of just how complicated it would be about 21 weeks into the pregnancy. My husband was golfing. I was looking at baby stuff online. Already really overwhelmed and terrified of what was to come. You know, just doing my best to prepare. And the doctor calls and she says, do you have a minute to talk? And she told me that I basically had the greatest risk that they could give me of my baby having Down syndrome. Heidi's life used to be so very different. Uh, a party, a rock and roll party. I have been playing as a professional musician, mostly in rock bands. There were a number of bands that I was touring with um, around the time I was probably 25. It was pretty constant. I'd only be home for a couple weeks at a time, and then we'd be out again. One band I toured with, I only sang back up for five years. So yeah, lots of different instruments, playing with lots of different bands in Boston and Austin, mostly. For over 10 years, Heidi spent most of the year touring and not much time at home. She loved it. It was her calling. I just always felt really comfortable with who I was in any setting that involved being with the band. And then being on stage just was everything. Yeah, this was my favorite show ever though, just the way I felt that day. Just totally full. It was like the moment so far of uh, my musical career. I remember just standing on stage, looking up and letting the sun hit me and just taking it in and it was just everything. It was a time in my life where I did not yet know about vulnerability. So the depth of, of emotion basically kind of set a footing to accept more love in my life and to be myself instead of the, the hard person that that lifestyle had made me into over time. I toured until I was about five months pregnant. And at that point, I was just too tired. Even more than most new moms, Heidi's life has changed dramatically with Pearl's emergence. Down syndrome is accompanied by a host of complications. Heidi found herself responsible for managing a web of complex medical treatments and therapies. Pearl has survived bacterial meningitis, eye surgery, three sets of tubes put in, multiple sicknesses, hospitalizations for breathing. The truth is, Heidi isn't just a stay-at-home mom. Her identity is split into these two polar extremes, and she constantly has to navigate the territory between. I feel like I'm living a parallel life next to a musical career right now to give Pearl her best foot in the world and advocate for her. But you can't just step out of one life and into an entirely different one. Just because I'm not playing music doesn't mean I'm not a musician, I guess. It's just a personal conflict all the time. Do, 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 do. La 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 la. Despite her medical complications, Pearl is an amazing kid. She's spunky and spirited. 
and she's hitting a lot of developmental milestones, thanks in part to her mom's vigilant care. And Heidi, she still has that rock and roll attitude, and she needs to express that part of herself. But not all the time. This piece was produced by Josh Madison and Ray Solomon as part of the 24-hour radio race from KCRW's Independent Producer Project. Ray Solomon is an independent radio producer here in Denver. You can hear more of her work on KGNU and on the podcast Changing Denver. She's also a volunteer at House of Pod. She's leading a podcast workshop there on the 20th of this month, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Now, back in May, Denver Orbit did a live show in Fort Collins, and I'll release the audio from that someday soon, I swear, but... I mention it because Bev and Luna played an amazing set there. And recently I put out a call for music to be played on this show, and Bevan reached out and sent me this song here called Volatile or Stable. Enjoy.
Northern Colorado singer-songwriter Bevan Luna's guitar and gut-driven songs package sly intelligence inside a rough and rugged sound. Fronting a formidable four-piece band that combines heavy riffs, punk rhythms, blues accents, and grunge-inspired arrangements with hints of country and folk, she concocts a versatile style she calls rockin' roots. Her tough yet soul-searching sensibility, quote, straddles the line between insightful songwriting and full-blown rock and roll in the grand tradition of the pretenders, says Salt Magazine, while her deep honey voice evokes the heady tones of Grace Slick and the articulations of Patti Smith. This song also featured Gabe Luna on drums and lead guitar. This song also featured Gabe Luna on drums and lead guitar, Mitch Clark on bass, and Jen Corte's backing vocals. You can find her music at bevanluna.com and on Instagram at bevanlunamusic. She was also recently featured on CPR's Open Air Performance Studio and has an upcoming show on December 8th at Hody's Half Note in Fort Collins. And I will have links to all of this in the show notes, as per usual. So finally today, we've got one last story. It's an essay that comes to us from author Elisa Gabbard. Time, money, happiness. I once read that happiness plateaus after you make $75,000 a year. Before you get to the magic number, increases in income correspond to increases in happiness. After that, more money won't buy you more happiness. I believe it, but it's hard to believe. By this metric, I should have already reached maximum happiness. And yet, there are things I feel sure would make me happier if I could afford them. One of those things is a bigger bed. My husband and I have slept on a full-size, aka double mattress, for almost 10 years. This once seemed normal, but now it seems ridiculously small, though our sizes haven't changed much. Over the past decade, we may have each gained five pounds. More crucially, John is 6'4". A full-size mattress is 75 inches long. That makes him one inch longer than the bed. He's also an insomniac of the sleep-onset variety, a restless sleeper, and occasional snorer. I fall asleep easily, but wake up easily too. And in the early morning hours, I find it hard to go back to sleep. I feel sure that we'd both get more and better sleep and thus be happier in a bigger bed. Can we afford a new bed? Of course we can. I make more than $75,000 a year. I have school debt, but no credit card debt. I recently raised my monthly payment on my school loans, and though the principal and interest on the loans still looks like a big number, according to one of those online debt calculators, at my new rate of payment, I'll have paid them off in about six years. But there are complications. For one thing, a queen-size mattress is only six inches wider than a full. My mother insists that those six inches make all the difference. But part of me feels that if we're going to make a big purchase and live with it for another 10 or so years, we should level all the way up to a king, or even a California king, which is four inches narrower than a king, but four inches longer. A king-size bed once seemed ridiculously large. No longer. However, a king wouldn't fit comfortably in our current bedroom. So that same or a related part of me feels that if we're going to buy a bigger bed, 
we should first move to a bigger apartment. But then the parts of me that hate moving and want a house feel that if we're going to go to the trouble of moving, we should first buy a house. We've never owned property, and our families aren't in a position to contribute to a down payment. So we can't buy a house without blowing the entirety of our savings. That makes me nervous. So we don't buy a house, and we don't buy a mattress. Another thing that would make me happy, the ability to play racket sports regularly. Sitting by myself in a bar recently, trying to kill an hour while John was at a doctor's appointment, I saw a clip of a tennis game on TV and was filled with a sudden keen longing. I took tennis lessons for a few years as a kid and have played only very sporadically since, often going years between games, except not games because I've forgotten how to serve so I could only hit around and try to get a rally going. There is no real cost to this activity. A cheap or used racket would do. There are plenty of free courts. Beyond time. But time has become expensive. Finding someone to play with, settling on a date, getting to the courts and actually playing. All this takes time. Time I can't devote to my careers the one that pays me over $75,000 a year and the ones that pay almost nothing, or other hobbies. When I was a freshman in college, I lived in a building that had a ping pong table, and this did the trick. There were usually people around to play an impromptu game, no planning required. I was very happy in college. Correlation is not causation, I know, but it's damning anyway. I would happily pony up for a ping pong table. But again, we bump into the apartment problem. We don't have the space for it. At 36, my relationship to time is complex. I've always been hyper aware of it. But when I was younger, I so often wanted time to move faster. I dreaded boredom more than anything. Now there is something exquisite about boredom, the slowed passage of time. In my 20s, I loved to sleep late on the weekends. Till 11 was ideal. Now I'd much prefer to wake up early, to read on the couch for several hours with coffee before making breakfast. It makes the day and hence the life feel longer. There is even an element of pleasure to insomnia, a break in that stretch of unconsciousness. Only in waking can I appreciate the pleasure of having slept. Would a bigger bed and deeper sleep make me happier? Or just more content? Contentment isn't happiness. I'm only 36. We have no kids. I am not dying faster than anyone else. Yet lately, especially when traveling, I have reached new levels of tiredness that seem to have nothing to do with sleep. Sleep can't touch them. It's as though time itself, accumulated time, has a weight I have to bear. It's as though I've entered the bargaining stage of mourning for time where it's hard to see which is more valuable, sleep or a little more life. And that's why I'm tired all the time. I stay out too late on a weeknight and then sit in the parked car outside our building to listen to two more songs on the radio. Their beauty enhanced by chance and ephemerality. 
I can't skip back to the beginning to hear them again. And by the two or three drinks that sharpen experience in real time, but blur my memory of it afterwards and disrupt my sleep. I said I feel sure before, but I don't obviously feel sure. I don't know if a bigger bed or more racket sports would make me happier. Up to a point, true optimization is possible. Clear improvements, big gains with little to no downside. Think indoor plumbing, sanitation, hand washing and hospitals. But there's a point in a mostly optimized system where it's harder and harder to make anything better without making something else worse. You're only moving happiness from column A to column B. I have a theory that change, even superficial change, produces temporary happiness. This is why people feel buzzed after quitting something or forming a new habit and start proselytizing to their friends. It's not necessarily that the particular act of giving up sugar, for example, makes their lives better. Our new couch made me happier for a while. It's newness and plushness and the built-in chaise providing extra incentive to wake up early and read on it. But now I'm used to it. This works the other way too, thankfully. Most people readjust to a baseline level of happiness after, say, a debilitating injury. Maybe we can maintain slightly elevated happiness by changing things all the time. Well, consumerism makes that easy. Is the change of scenery happiness boost artificial? Or is all happiness artificial? Over dinner with friends one night, the 7-Up documentary series comes up. Here's the premise. In 1964, a British filmmaker chose a group of 14 seven-year-old children from different socioeconomic backgrounds and followed them through their lives, checking in every seven years. I mention an American version, based in New York City, that I saw one episode of many years ago. What was most striking was that the rich kids, the Manhattanites, didn't change much between 7 and 14. There was one memorable shot of three girls sitting on a couch in a posh apartment overlooking Central Park. It toggled between footage from the late and early 90s. Same girls, same order. Their responses to the same questions were remarkably similar. This wasn't true for the kids from working class families in Brooklyn or the Bronx or Queens, who at age seven swore they would never do drugs, and at age 14 might be dealing them. John remarks that it's depressing how rigidly income and class and misfortune define the course of one's life. Our friend Katie, an artist who was once almost paralyzed when a gallery wall collapsed and crushed her pelvis, disagrees. No, she cries, it's liberating. It's hope that will ruin your life. Accepting your fate is liberating. How Sisyphean. It cheers me greatly and we order more wine.
Elisa Gabbert is a poet and essayist and the author of four collections. The word pretty, l'air bleu, or the Judy poems, the self-unstable, and the French exit. Her work has appeared in the New Yorker, the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, the Guardian Long Read, Boston Review, the Paris Review Daily, Pacific Standard, Guernica, The All, Electric Literature, the Harvard Review, Three Penny Review, Real Life, and many other venues. Elisa is currently writing a book about disaster culture and human failure, The Unreality of Memory, forthcoming from FSG Originals. You can find her at elisagabbert.com and on Twitter at egabbert. And you know where you'll find links to all of this? Yes, you do! In the show notes. And that's it. There's no more show. If you're internetly inclined, you can find Denver Orbit on Facebook and over on the Instagram. I've been Josh Madison. I'm the producer of this thing. And I will see you again in two weeks. The hell blue, the hell blue, the hell. Fuck. <laughs>